When it comes to acquisition, my next guest has done it all, used lean management to reduce backlogs and speed up procurements. She's brought senior agency management into acquisition planning, found innovative ways to meet small business goals. She's the director of the Office of Acquisition Solutions in the Office of Mission Support at the EPA and also the recent recipient of a Presidential Rank Award, Kimberly Patrick, joins me now. Ms. Patrick, good to have you on. Good morning. Thank you so much, Tom. Glad to be here. And one of the things I wanted to discuss is mentioned in your citation is that the idea of tying acquisition directly to the mission owners and mission leaders at EPA. So often you hear, you know, acquisition is siloed and not really connected in that way. Tell us more about that. You know, actually, it's essential. I don't know how sound solid acquisition is even placed if your mission partners are not integrally involved in the acquisition itself. Acquisitions doesn't really exist in the federal space unless there's a mission really to be accomplished. I think our biggest mission partners that we work with at EPA is our Office of Land and Emergency Management, which houses the agency Superfund program. And I think that the partnership that we have with them is incredibly strong and that even at their senior management levels, they're very much involved in shaping um, and driving the acquisitions. And even with our regional Superfund directors, they're also very much involved with the regional contracting offices in shaping acquisitions to support the program. And give us a sense of the types of acquisitions, the types of products and services needed for Superfund. Uh, Is it like professional Mm -hmm. services? Um, Is it big diggers and dump trucks or what? It's all of that. (laughs) You name it. When we look at the remedial program itself, you have design and engineering, you have architectural services, you have construction work. And that includes, you know, moving earth, dumping earth, finding places to put hazardous materials, all of those things. It's a huge landscape of need that is out there. And the businesses that we partner with and work with to make the program successful um, run the gamut. You have very small businesses who may just take dump trucks of dirt from here to there. And then you have incredibly large architectural engineering firms that also work on these projects, which sometimes can span 20 years. And your 1102s that do the actual contracting and have to have some knowledge about this industry, what about the contracting officer representatives, the cores? They must be pretty specialized in the EPA. They are essential. I always say that, you know, while the CEO has the warrant and combined the government, it's the core that really does the management of the contract once it's placed. And it's essential to have a cadre of strong cores. One of the things that I've been pretty insistent about since I've been the director of the the contract shop is that the agency needs to do more to strengthen the core capability and to actually invest more in the core function. Um, Sometimes you'll find cores where that core work is only 25% of their job. But when you actually talk to them and ask how much does this take up to manage, especially a large contract effectively, sometimes it's up to 75 to 80% if not all of their job. There should be moves, not just at EPA, I think across the government, to do more to really almost professionalize what cores do. Because if they're dealing with large contracts or really active contracts, it's incredibly time consuming. And also EPA has been on a mission, you might say, to upgrade its information technology systems, use more cloud computing, because you know a few years ago they were found to be fairly dated in the way the IT worked. So I imagine you've got to have expertise in that industry, which is miles from the remediation and cleanup and environmental direct work types of companies. You know, one of the things we did when we had our reorganization in 2017, um, which is I was only a year in and we did a major reorg of the contract shop. 
but we moved to organize the office by commodity. And so we developed a unit in my organization that does nothing but IT contracting. And that was to help develop their expertise to do exactly what you said. They need to have a knowledge of what's available. They need to know the market to be able to service the customer. And so we did that so that they could develop that because it wasn't innately there. It's something that had to be learned. And so it's a process and we're still, you know, working hard to, to get to the point where we know the market almost better than um, our IT shop does. But we have a good partnership with our IT shop. We're developing the relationship and um, we try to work together to make sure everyone stays on the cutting edge. I think EPA has come a long way in the IT area, and I have to give some credit to my colleague in OMS, um, Vaughn Noga, who's also a fellow Presidential Rank Award winner, and that he's brought so much innovation um, and change to that space. Um, and EPA has grown light years because of his leadership as well. And Vaughn has been on this show as well, too, talking about some of those things over the years. We're speaking with Kimberly Patrick. She's director of the Office of Acquisition Solutions at the EPA and also a Presidential Rank Award recipient this year. And I wanted to ask you about your work in bringing in small business and small disadvantaged business, kind of a subset and you've mm-hmm. met the goals, and those goals are rising government-wide because of uh, orders from the Biden administration. So what have some of your strategies been to really foster that? Because you've had some creative work there. Well, you know, at EPA, our history in performing incredibly well with small businesses and with small disadvantaged businesses is well documented. I would say for maybe the last 10 years, we've received an A on the SBA scorecard for our performance. And the small disadvantaged business goal is one that we've always met. Um, While historically that goal has been 5% for the federal government, um, and now I believe it's 11%, that's not something that shakes us. For example, last year for FY21, we performed up 18% for small disadvantaged businesses. And the individual goal that the agency received for 2022 from SBA for small disadvantaged businesses is at 17. And so for us, it's about continuing to do what works. But in addition to that, given the executive order on equity, there's a piece in there for procurement that's very strong. And so we've been working to come up with some innovative techniques to reach out to those underserved and underrepresented businesses, regardless of category. And so we're not just looking at strategies for small disadvantaged businesses. It's all of the socioeconomic categories where they have lacked a lot of attention and need more, even though we're doing well. Some of the things that we're looking at doing is instituting a process for anonymous technical evaluation panels. EPA loves its contractors and we love them, but sometimes when we have a contractor who's been in business with us for 40 years working the same work, you're not expanding your market. And so we want to make sure that a lot of times our newer businesses, which are our smaller businesses, have the opportunity to compete technical capability to technical capability and not always relying on name brand or what's familiar. And so we're working on putting that policy in place. And we recently had a listening session with industry about shaping that policy. So we're excited about that. Another thing we want to do when we listen to the underserved community, we asked them what were some of their barriers that they saw. And one of the biggest ones that we heard was they don't have access to EPA decision makers so that they can know what their capabilities are. And in my mind, I said, that's something easy to fix. And so we're doing efforts to actually establish targets for um, senior leadership to actually participate in engagement with the businesses, because I do believe once they know what the capabilities are, that's going to move the needle. And so we're excited about where we're going with that. Another thing we're doing as we are shaping our outreach events, we're trying to make them targeted to our forecasts. 
So when we talk about doing business with EPA, we can talk about actual procurements that we see on the horizon, um, making the conversation more meaningful for the businesses when they know that there's an actual opportunity that can come out of the conversation. And let me just ask a question based on something I've seen over the decades following this. Very often there are companies that will have a principal that is of color or of one of the SBD categories. But in reality, there's a lot of just regular folks backing it and kind of it's a way to get in. Is it a way to get at those numbers and actually develop? I mean, there's a bigger purpose here than just a type of company, but is making sure that all Americans have the technical and business skills needed to participate just equally across the board. How do you get past that kind of front end appearance of SBD that might meet a legal requirement, but doesn't meet what you're really trying to do there? You know, that's been a criticism of the SDB program for a very long time because it is a self-certification program. It is not something where you go through the rigor that, you know, the 8A program or the HUBZone program does at SBA. And so it's one of those things, quite honestly, you, you take the risk. Frankly, there's not a whole lot you can do about people who choose to be dishonest. But one thing I've found in working with industry, it never fails that your competition will tell on you. And they will they will very much, I guess, uh, challenge some of the assertions if that's the case. But one of the things that we're doing, instead of focusing on the potential for people to be dishonest, we're broadening the conversation. So we're not just focusing on SDBs. Um, as I mentioned before, because we do so well in that category, we're really honing in on hubstones. We're really honing in on 8A. We're honing in on some of the other categories as well, which are also SDBs, but these are categories that have a certification. And my particular love for the HUBZone program is that not only is it a certified program, but it also impacts communities in that the people who work at the businesses, 35%, have to live in a hub zone. And so it's a program that really targets and hits on so many other things beyond just here's the contract. It's about jobs as well. And so that's one of the things we're doing to sort of broaden the conversation to make sure we're capturing not just those who check that box sometimes and our SDBs. But we've also found, honestly, We found more companies that are legitimately SDBs than we have those that have been dishonest. The instances where we found that are so rare. And I hope that's reflective of people's honesty, even though there is the potential for people to take advantage sometimes because it's a self-certification. And finally, your thoughts on senior executive service, federal career, and being a woman of color who has come up through the ranks to reach presidential rank award status. Wow, that's a loaded question, Tom. Um, (laughs) Well, one thing I can say, um, and this is going to sound incredibly corny, but I'm going to say it anyway, true leadership is a calling. And what I found is it's something you can't escape or ignore. It's funny. I never necessarily set out. I didn't say I'm going to be an SES when I started my federal career. I took pride and joy in each and every job I had, even when there were rough days. And so my focus has always been, and I remember listening to my mom that everything you do, you should do with excellence and you do it well. And if you're not going to do it well, don't do it. And that is something that no matter what assignment I've been given is something that I've done throughout my career. When I talk to others who aspire to the SES, I tell them the focus isn't on being an SES. The focus is on being willing to do some things and take those, those projects nobody else wants to do. Don't run from what's difficult. Run to it. 
and have a solution for it. Don't stand on the sideline and complain. Get involved and, and be a part of change. And so that's sort of been my mantra. And when I started, every time I've been selected to move to the next level, I rest well in knowing it's been because of my work and not necessarily because of who I knew and, and all those other things people want to tell you it's really about. It's not. Um, not not always. And when you get there, what I call the right way, people can't take it from you because you you built it on your work. And that's the focus. Kimberly Patrick is director of the Office of Acquisition Solutions at the EPA and a Presidential Rank Award recipient. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also 
reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.